industry focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, December 28th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're taking a look back at the year and some of the things that stood out. We're also going to take a look back at some of the bold predictions made at the beginning of the year and how that's all worked out. Joining me for our last financial show of 2020, he's my friend and yours, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. Last week, you got me and Mr. Wonderful. This week, you just get me, so... Well, I mean, I was going to say, we, we, you're our Mr. Wonderful, man. Don't sell yourself short. <laughs> well, Matt, you know, I said, uh, I mentioned in the intro there, we were going to talk about some of the things that stood out here for 2020. And we're also going to take a look back at some of the bold predictions that were made at the beginning of the year, specifically by you. This is something I've really enjoyed being able to do with you is looking back at the uh, the bold predictions that you lob out there for for the new year and then kind of taking a look back and seeing how that all shook out. So we'll get to that, but let's open the show here. Let's start in in and let's start with the headline for the year. For you when you look back at 2020 and our world of financials and all of the stuff we've covered on the show throughout the year, what's your headline for the year in the world of financials? Just I I'd have to say the volatility that we saw and the amount of just bargains for long-term investors. Yeah. Uh, specifically during March and April, a lot of the stocks that we cover were priced like they were going to go bankrupt. You're um, right. There were a lot of bargains there. That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had a portfolio, and I, I, I mean, I checked it in, in late March, and it looked like I owned a bunch of penny stocks. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know about yours, but I had a few. I had quite a few in mine. Um, uh, well, I mean, I definitely felt a little bit of pain early in the year. That's for sure. A lot of them were priced like that, despite having really solid balance sheets and solid assets and. No real reason for the panic. I mean, just to name a couple of the ones that just from my own portfolio, uh, uh, Tanger Outlets, one we've covered on the show a few times, uh, ticker symbol SKT, um, they had more liquidity than they have market cap at one point. I mean, and more cash in the bank than they had market cap. I mean, so that that, they were priced like the value of their assets were zero. That's um, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, Ryman Hospitality, the owners of the Gaylord by you, uh, yeah. RHP, mm-hmm. they were trading for something like $14 a share. They went into the year go, trading for 90 I, that, That's wow. That's insane. They're, one of Any one of their hotels was worth more than their market cap at that point in time. Yeah, you know, it was really, it was interesting to see early, especially early on in the year, and, and, and certainly as the year progressed, I mean, we saw we saw a lot of those real estate investment trusts really taking it on the chin, and, and a lot of that was because businesses were shut down, customers weren't going, businesses couldn't pay rent, and that rent was going to a lot of these real estate investment trusts, and, and it just was this chain reaction that it became very unclear exactly what the resolution would be and i mean obviously we saw uh, a little bit of a, a little bit of a lull there over the summer where business was able to pick back up and we got some 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 financial aid from from uncle sam but but yeah i mean it's it's it, it's been a tricky situation for all involved and it, it, it does feel like it does feel like those stocks in, in that in that market it feels like they were it feels like they were being priced for just the worst case scenario. Yeah, there's a fine line between uncertainty and a panic. 
Yeah. And we saw a lot of panic. Like I've, Empire State Realty is uh, another one. I've oh, called yeah. that the biggest no-brainer in the stock market at different different <laughs> points of time this year. I mean, the, the Empire State Building is worth about three times what the company was trading for, and they have a ton of other properties. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's priced like nobody's going to work in an office in New York City again, which, by the way, they said right after September 11th, too, and we saw how that worked out. Yep. Yep. So you're right. it, it's it's insane how some some of these companies were priced like they were going to go away. And by the way, Empire State has more than a billion dollars of cash to make it through the tough times. So even if their building was vacant, I wouldn't think they were going out of business. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there have just been a ton of these that, and that, that's really been the story of the year to me is just how how great of an environment it's been in the financial and real estate sectors for long term stock picking. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That stood out to me as well. I mean, it, it is. There, there are a lot of benefits when you go into into stretches like that with a bit of a watch list and an understanding of the businesses that are on that watch list and what makes them tick because there, there's a psychology to the market that it, it's, it's very difficult to quantify. And the only way you can really quantify is what the stock prices are at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's just... Like I said, some of the prices didn't make like right now. I say how some of the prices don't make sense in the other direction, like Tesla. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, you know, in in March and April, some of the prices were just like in, insanely cheap. They were like they were priced like 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 the Empire State Building was going to get get demolished the next day. I mean, and and it just it doesn't make sense. A lot of the financials. Um, I just mentioned some real estate stocks, but like Synchrony Financial w- was priced like none of their credit card debt was going to get paid. None. And and I mean now it's trading for about three times what the March lows, and for good reason. It's because it was an irrational panic, and that's great if you're like Buffett says. I wish he had taken more advantage of it, but irrational panics are great if you're trying to buy stocks to hold for twenty or thirty years. Yeah, yeah, and that's that net buyer of stocks uh, idea that we always talk about here. I mean, when you know that you're going to be buying more than you're selling, and you're aiming to to collect them and and, and hang on to them. Hopefully, a lot of our members and our listeners were able to take advantage of that time. I know we all we all did to to the to the amount that we could, but um, it's 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 not always easy, right? It's it's easy kind of going in there when times are good to say, "Oh, I'm going to take advantage of a market when when uh, you know the panic hits." But then the panic hits and and it, you start second guessing yourself. And I think with experience, you know that that becomes a little bit easier to do. But but it just it does take that experience. And anyway, I go back to you know, your mention of of 2011 or of uh, September 11th. But then also even the financial crisis back, um, in, you know, 2008 9. Uh, go through those periods of time as an investor, even though they're painful at the time. They really are just the most invaluable stretches where you can learn the most. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this has been the first, since I've worked at The Fool, this has been the first major market turbulence that we've experienced. I wasn't with The Motley Fool in the 08, 09 recession. I know you, I think you were. No, that was right before oh, I actually got here. Too. I started, yeah, I started in 2010. I was investing. I just, uh, I was a, I was a member of The Fool. I just wasn't an employee. <laughs> I was investing. And that's kind of my point. I was investing in 2008, 2009, but I was doing it in the wrong way because I didn't really get the long-term term focus as much as I do now and what to look for in long-term investments. I was more like, you know, what, what's going to be more, what's going to go up the next month or what looks like a bargain today, but, you know, I'll sell tomorrow and, you know, things like that. Uh, and this is the first one that I, I, and I really feel like for the most part, I got it right and a lot of people got it right. Um, 
So, and from a long time, pretty much everything I bought in March and April is still in my portfolio, and I'm not planning on selling anytime soon. And I'm pretty sure that you you've said the same. Oh yeah, yep, yep. I, I subscribe to that as well. Um, what's one stock? What's one business stock or business? Let's let's combine the two. But what's one of the one of the business performances out there that surprised you the most over this past year, given the pandemic and everything that's gone on? Uh, there are a lot of surprises, both good and bad. What's one that really stood out to you? And you can go either way, good or bad. Well, let me give you two. I'll give you one each way. All right. Um, one that really negatively surprised me was Howard Hughes Corporation. I, I know oh, yeah. I talked about them. Um, they were just poorly prepared for this. Um, yeah. To be fair, their their three major their three biggest markets are Las Vegas, which got absolutely hammered. I mean, Las Vegas is still really suffering. Um, Houston, which is really tied to the oil industry, we know how that's doing this year, and New York City, which they own the the, the seaport district. Um, so they they got hit harder than most, but the fact that they had to do a dilutive equity raise at about seventy percent less than the the stock was before the pandemic. Um, and you know who brutal. bought most of the new newly issued shares? Who? The company's chairman, Bill Ackman. Oh wow, I didn't realize that. So it it really sounds like to me it it felt like kind of a sneaky way for Ackman to buy more of the company because <laughs> they they sold it to him for fifty dollars a share. Howard Hughes started the year you know one thirty ish. So the the fact that they had to do that to raise capital, um, they they didn't have you know a credit line, they didn't have cash in the bank, anything like that. It's kind of a similar situation to how, they, how we say the airlines, you know, all they've done is buy back stock. They haven't put anything in the bank. Um, kind of feels like they were just really poorly prepared for it. Yep. Well, uh, I think a lot of a lot of folks were. What about the upside? What company you said you had two? What company surprised you in, in the good way? It's a it's not a financial, but FedEx. Ooh. Um, they had a yeah. fantastic year. Um, the stock's up about seventy five percent year to date for good reason. Um, they they invested a lot in recent years in their infrastructure. You remember they've kind of had like a war with Amazon going on. Oh yeah. Um, they appear to be winning it. <laughs> um, I mean, Amazon's not using them anymore. So what did you know? I love this move that FedEx just recently announced. They announced that they're acquiring an e-commerce platform called ShopRunner. Oh wow! I didn't is, realize that. Which is essentially an Amazon Prime competitor. They they um they have a network of companies. They have Under Armour's on there, American Eagles on there, the NBA stores on there. And it's like a two-day shipping. If you if you join ShopRunner, it's like an Amazon Prime. You could buy from any of them with free two-day shipping. And I I love that move. Um, they're a big recipient. They're a big beneficiary of the e-commerce boom, and the fact that the postal service is so backed up. I'm I'm still getting Christmas cards that were they <laughs> so, were mailed like three weeks ago. So are we. So they're they're a, they're a big beneficiary of that because when you have a, an efficient shipping service like that, it's it's tremendous pricing power when the alternative takes a month. Oh, there's no question. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, and that that ship runner that sounds a lot like um, the the business that Target acquired a little while back, shipped, which is essentially it sounds like the same thing. I mean, it's that same type of Amazon Prime competitor where it's able to not only really serve Target's purposes, but also they're able to bring retailers from all different walks onto that platform as well to give them more of an e-commerce presence and uh, and give Amazon a little bit of competition. It's it seems like it's really at the end of the day, it's working out really well for investors and consumers. It is. I mean, I, I added a lot to my FedEx investment in 2019. I mentioned it on the show after I did, um, and I'm really glad. I I, I kind of I, I had a feeling that they weren't just going to kind of go quietly after Amazon stopped using them. No, a company no. like that, and, and it's it's paid off. 
Yeah, that's a good move. That's a good move. I like that. Um, who would you say, now there are a lot of different ways you can go with this because a lot of leaders really did stand out in 2020, but who are you calling out as your best CEO of 2020? I have a few. Uh, I have a few honorable mentions because my my number one is not the financial sector. So I want to give you a few honorable mentions. Uh, one is David Solomon from Goldman Sachs. Um, I think he did. A, he's done a great job of growing the consumer banking capabilities of that company even during the pandemic. Uh, another is Willie Walker from Walker and Dunlop. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Who they met their five year goals in 2020 that they set five years ago despite the pandemic, and he kind of like. I don't know if you saw their recent investor day. He he um, put out a presentation where they they basically want to dominate uh, consumer real estate or commercial real estate finance in the next five years. That's a big they're, market. I mean, and right now they're just a multifamily lender, so that's a pretty. Ambi- I, I love the ambition, um, but my number one for the year has to be uh, Bob Chapik of Disney. Ah, yeah. Um, and I kind of got. I, I'd say Bob Iger, who was CEO until February, is also worthy of the title. Um, I call, I don't want to call them co CEOs during the pandemic, <laughs> um, but yeah, February late February 2020 is not a great time to be taking over as CEO of anything. No, um, I love that he um, he he did right by his employees for the most part. He held off on layoffs as long as possible. I mean, we just learned of a a big round of layoffs in November, just because they can't get that California park open. Um, but he, they kept they kept their employees on payroll for a lot longer than a lot of other people did. Um, the streaming success has just been off the charts. Yeah, um, yeah, it really has. They hit their their five year goal within a year. Um, they now see a, a, you know up to two hundred sixty million Disney Plus subscribers by twenty twenty four. That would make it bigger than Netflix in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's granted it's a projection, and and that's what they're aiming for. Um, but when you see the additional markets that they're rolling out, I mean, everywhere from Latin America to Eastern Europe, right. I mean, it does it does feel like they're they're getting out into markets there where people will really be clamoring for that Disney brand, right. and they have the competitive advantage that they're they're doing this. I mean, there are some original content like The Mandalorian, things like that. They're, they're doing this. A lot of it's with content that they already own. They, it's a they don't have to develop as much new content as say Netflix does. I mean, we we pay for Disney Plus so my daughter can watch Frozen seven times a day. <laughs> not not seven times. I'd say seven times a week. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? And, and that's not costing Disney a dime. So this has the potential. I mean, right now they're investing heavily in content. But this is the potential to be, you know, in the tens of billions of dollars a year in high margin revenue. Oh, yeah. Over yeah, time. No so I, mean, I, I love that how, how they've just like, they sh- they're a stock that should have been crushed. I mean, they have a cruise line that's not sailing. They have theme parks that weren't open and are still at, I think, 35% capacity. They have movie franchises that have no theaters to show in. They should have been crushed this year, but they're they're not. And it's, uh, I mean, their management team, you really have to take their, your hat off to them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. They've done a stellar job, and, and you're right. That was a very difficult time for him to take over the position, but he... He's made that his company, and and I tell you, he's uh, he, he's done one heck of a job with it. Uh, well, listen, Matt. In order to be a good investor, we need to be humble, right? We need a little humility. We we need to understand that. Yeah, well, we all do. We all <laughs> no one's perfect, right? Um, we make mistakes. We get things wrong. What was something that you got wrong in 2020 that stood out to you? The magnitude of the COVID pandemic, hands down. I was one of the people in the in January, February, saying, "Yeah, it's just the flu." It's just a flu. It'll never. It'll. It'll never turn out to anything here. It'll get. I mean, 
not that I quote the president very often, but when he said, like, it'll get warm and go away, I was kind of in that camp for a while in, in the early part of the year. Um, I, I had no idea how bad it could get. It caused me to make some investments way too early in February um, when, you know, the, the market started to drop because the, we heard about the outbreak in China. There were a few, I think it started in, in uh, the Seattle area was where we first got it in the U.S., if yeah. I'm remembering correctly. Sounds right. So there were some fears. There weren't very many on U.S. shores. Um, so I, I made two investments I remember, that I really remember that were way too early. I bought Occidental Petroleum the day before the market crashed, <laughs> which was, you know, that's, you, you don't get much worse timing than that. And uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Goldman Sachs as well. Um, I bought both of those in February just because I thought it was just an overreaction about nothing. And that obviously turned out not to be the case. I quickly changed my tune as soon as, you know, the, the, the actual spread and the actual outbreak started. It was clear that I was wrong. And I wasn't the only one who was saying it's just the flu. No, no, <laughs> to be, no. To be I, fair. Hey, listen, I'll <laughs> jump on that. I'll jump on that. Uh, I'll, I'm, I, I underestimated it as well. I think we all, uh, you know, hey, listen, I was speaking with physicians early on in the year that, that felt the same way. I mean, it, this was something that most people underestimated and, and folks who don't cop to that, I think, are just fooling themselves and, and not not being fully honest. And we, we have some of our colleagues who admittedly got it right. Yeah. Um, uh, Brian Stoffel's one that I know was on Twitter in February saying, let's shut everything down now. It's going to get bad. And I said, hey, you're crazy. You're, you're, you know. <laughs> and, and it turns out uh, you, you know, that, that tweet didn't age well that I responded yeah. to him. <laughs> um, so, he, I mean, we had some people who got it right. I wasn't one of them. Um, I thought it was a lot of fear mongering going on at the time. I regret feeling like that now. But, um, you know, I think I'm I think I made up for it. I think I got it right the, in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us a lot of us underestimated it, but hopefully we're uh, hopefully we're turning the corner into a, a better and more productive uh, year here. Uh, final final uh, look back here at two, uh, 2020 here. Um, what, what was the biggest thing? One of the biggest things that 2020 taught you as an investor? That there's no such thing as a recession-proof stock. Um, before 2020, if you had told me that any recession would cause realty income, ticker symbol O, to lose half of its value, I would have said you're crazy. Or Disney, like we just mentioned. If you told me Disney would be trading for half of what it started at, started 2020 at at some point, I would have thought you were crazy. These are recession-proof companies, in my mind. But the, the big lesson to learn from 2020 is that every recession is different. Um, every recession affects certain areas of the market in different ways. We clearly haven't had a pandemic like this for 100 years. And the last time we did, things like fintech didn't exist. So <laughs> yeah. you can't assume that just because something is recession-resistant, that it's recession-proof. And that's what really the lesson I really learned, like like banks, my portfolio is banks and real estate. That sounds like a pretty recession-proof portfolio. Not so much this year, you know. In 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 March, all all, all you guys at the full with uh, all your your zooms and all your your you know docu signs and all that were were laughing at me in, in March and April for having <laughs> for having all my uh, my real estate and all that. Well, I don't think anybody. Well, I know I wasn't laughing. I think I've, I've I've learned enough lessons through the years to try to keep that dose of humility. But I mean, to your point. I mean, the financial sector really hasn't fully recovered yet either. I mean, I was looking at this earlier today, actually, the, the S&P 500 Financials Index, right? I mean, it's I think it's 65 of the most relevant 
financials. And I mean, I'm talking about banks and insurance companies, right? There aren't any payments companies in this index. But that index is still still down about 6% for the year and underperforming most everything else out there. So so it has been a very tough year for banks. And, and you're right. I mean, for, for an industry that is viewed as fairly defensive, even in the toughest of times, it, it has not fared as well. Um, but you know, the flip side of that is, I, I think actually we could be looking at uh, a pretty good setup for a lot of these, a lot of these financials going into 2021, assuming that uh, the vaccines um, take hold, and, and, and assuming that we we do see some economic recovery. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd agree with that. But when I think to the le- the, the the three recessions that have happened in my adult lifetime have been to this year's the COVID recession. We've had the 2008 2009 uh, financial crisis and the dot com bubble bursting in the early 2000s. Yeah, all three of those affected the market in very different ways. In in 2000 2001, stocks like Zoom and DocuSign would have gotten clobbered. Sure, and I mean, and in this recession, they went through the roof. So every recession is different, and that's a really important lesson to learn. A lot of people generalize what would happen in a recession, and generally, there are some. You know, constants. You get you get lower interest rates during recessions, for for example, um, for the most part. I don't. I mean, the Fed generally cuts interest rates when when a recession hits. But for the but when it comes to individual stocks, every recession is its own animal, and that's a really important lesson to learn. That I learned that I've I found myself learning the hard way <laughs> this year. <laughs> Well, Matt, back in December of 2019, December 9th, to be specific, you published an article on Fool.com called Five Bold Predictions for the Stock Market in 2020. Now, you do this, I think, every year. You publish these predictions. It's it's fun. I mean, you go into it with a, you take it all with a grain of salt. It's fun. It gets you thinking a little bit outside the box. And we always have fun uh, previewing them. And then, uh, like we're getting ready to do here, we're going to review these five bold predictions that you uh, laid out for us back in December of 2019 to kind of see how everything has worked out. Now, clearly, when you wrote this article, there was really no anticipation that we would be running into uh, the pandemic. But, I mean, the lesson there is that you can't ever really <laughs> predict the future, right? I mean, you just got to go uh, with whatever whatever you brought. Um, so, let's go ahead and jump into this because I want to take these one at a time and cover each five of them here and just give you a chance to, to revisit. Uh, and, and we'll go ahead and start with number one. And this, this first bold prediction, I think, is interesting because it, it kind of it kind of came to fruition, but then it also kind of didn't. And, and I'm going to let you explain. Yeah, number one, I said the stock market will have a rough year. And I think in mid-year, I think that was very accurate. <laughs> I, I it still feels like it's been kind of a rough it's, year. It's I been mean, a I, rough year, as, it, as in I feel like 2020 has been going on since I was 10 years old. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's been an interesting year. And that was a very bold prediction at the beginning of 2020. I, I mean, for the most part, the market had been going straight up for a decade. And everybody was predicting the same in 2020. They were predicting that you know, um, the, you know, the biggest catalysts were uh, tr- Donald Trump was saying tax reform 2.0. Remember that? Mm-hmm. That was yep. that was supposed to happen during 2020, which uh, for obvious reasons got put on the back burner as the year went on. But it, there was really no reason in most people's mind to think that the market was going to have a tough year. But in my mind, there was, and I like you said, I had no crystal ball that predicted the pandemic. 
I would have rather been wrong in the pandemic, the pandemic not happen. Oh yeah. But I, I, my point was just that there was a lot more that could go wrong than right at that point. There was the trade war that was still going on. There was, um, you know, interest rates were kind of going, heading downwards, which is usually indicative of a, of a recession. Uh, the yield curve had just inverted to be specific. Um, but there was just a lot more that looked like it was going to go wrong than right. And I mean, like I said, that's one of them. I'm, I'm not happy. I got right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hey, listen, you, you can only, you can only do what you can only do. Right. Um, okay. Let's look here at number two. And this involves a certain, I guess, octogenarian still and may or may not have involved an elephant gun. I don't know what, what, what happened. Well, here? Number two was Warren Buffett will make his biggest acquisition yet. And I'm going to tell you a secret, Jason. If I put this on the bold prediction list every year, I'm going to be right eventually. <laughs> eventually you will. <laughs> or Buffett's just going to have like $500 billion to work with at some point. And he'll just, you know, he'll buy Apple or something like that. Well, uh, I guess he didn't really make a big deal this year, did he? No, he um, it really disappointed people, including me in March and April, when we when we found out they, that he literally did almost nothing in the second quarter when the market crashed. Um, the, the biggest move he made was selling his airline stocks at big losses. Um, then, you know, t- toward the second half of the year, he looked like he was finally putting some money to work. He uh, bought some more Bank of America stock. Uh, he acquired Dominion's natural gas assets. But he didn't make any big acquisitions, and he didn't fire the elephant gun, like he likes to say. Um, you, like you, you said, you couldn't remember his big acquisitions this year. It's because he didn't make any. Yeah, um, his biggest didn't. acquisition recently is still Precision Cast Parts, which was 2015. So I'd like to think I'm, – I'm leaving this off the list. I just wrote my 2021 <laughs> piece. Um, I'm leaving this off the list for next year. Watch, now it's actually going to happen. Um, <laughs> That's the way it he, usually works. He still has a ton of cash and supposedly wants to make a big deal, but valua- valuations have just been a big obstacle. And now that the market's at all-time highs again, I don't see how that's going to change. Well, number three is a subject that I feel like you and I talk a lot about this. We've talked about it, I think, um, and yeah, I feel like we talk about it every year, but we talk about it probably every month. But it's it's just in regard to the financial sector in general, right? And in, in, in more acquisitions, perhaps, uh, that could be on the way. Yeah, 2019 was a pretty big year for acquisitions in the financial sector. Uh, BB&T and SunTrust, that's when that merger happened. Uh, TD Ameritrade and Schwab, that's when that was announced. So I predicted a lot more of that in 2020. Obviously, the pandemic got in the way of that somewhat because the financial sector was a little hard hit. We still saw some. Um, E-Trade was acquired by Morgan Stanley. That was probably the biggest financial deal of the year. Um, There were a few smaller ones, but I'd have to mark that one half right. Well, you know, half's better than none. (laughs) What about number four? Because this kind of goes in in uh, this kind of goes in tandem with number one here. Uh, but I guess technically you did get this one right. I think, yeah, I did. It says the U.S. economy will fall into a recession, which did happen. And to my knowledge, we're not out of a recession yet. Well, hey, I guess we got to wait till we see the numbers. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think you're right. It's still it's still going on. And I mean. I, I I'll I'll defend myself a little bit and say here's one I, my first line under that was here's one that I hope I'm wrong about. <laughs> um, but the re- here I, I showed I I listed a few reasons there. It's that um, economic growth has noticeably softened, which was true that the the Fed had started to lower interest rates before the pandemic. Um, 
you know, uh, the trade war wasn't showing signs of progress. There was just a big standoff going between the going on between the U.S. and China. Yeah. Um, election risk was definitely a thing before the pandemic. Um, I would have viewed a Democrat win as a negative for the market. Um, and it generally is when it when it, you go from a Republican controlled government to a Democrat one. It's usually a negative reaction at first. Um, you know, prospect of higher taxes, more business regulation, things like that without a pandemic going on. So that, that kind of threw a wrench in that. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the yield curve had just inverted during 2019. So that's usually a pretty reliable predictor of a recession. So I actually don't know how bold that prediction was, um, just cause it's a pretty reliable indicator. Um, but like I, I cited a statistic there at, in December 19, Bloomberg put the chance of a recession in 2020 at 26%, and they were wrong. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Um, and a lot, yeah, most other prediction models I saw were in that, that neighborhood. So that's what, that's what made that a bold prediction is that pretty much everyone was calling for just business as usual in 2020. And you remember those good old days where the headlines were just dominated by China trade tensions, you know, the whole relationship there, trade disputes with China. I mean, that, that was like, that seems so tame now. Yeah, in, it seems in, like in such a non-issue right? at this point. I know. I I, I want to get back to those days. <laughs> Let's get back to those days, Matt. Hopefully 2021 will <laughs> take us back to those days. <laughs> well, number five here, uh, another another interesting one. And hey, listen, I can tell you, I know this worked out because I think a lot of people um, refinance their homes throughout the year. But but uh, lead us into number five here. Yeah, I'd actually be curious to hear from anyone listening who hasn't refinanced their mortgage and why. <laughs> Um, number five was that interest rates will fall. Um, so I, I, like I said, this kind of goes along with the prediction of a recession and a rough year for the markets. Those usually come with interest rate cuts. Um, but I also said that mortgage rates and, you know, all consumer interest rates would get really low. I didn't go so far as to predict negative interest rates. Um, which didn't happen, but we're we're certainly talked about it. So at oh, certain yeah, points throughout yeah. the year, well, they they've happened elsewhere around the world. They right. just haven't really happened. So they here, just haven't yeah. happened here. Um, so we have record low mortgage rates right now. Federal funds rates at zero and probably will be for a while. Um, you're, if you have a credit card, your credit card interest rate is usually linked to the federal funds rate. So that's you know lower than you, than it started this year. If you're borrowing money or you know buying something big, twenty twenty is. You know, I'm not saying to spend beyond your means, but 2020 is a good time to be borrowing money if that's what you need to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, right. I've, I've refinanced. Um, I know someone who's refinanced twice um, <laughs> because you know the rates went down to about 3% and then they went down to about 2.5%. Yeah. It was worth doing it again. Um, I mean, the numbers don't lie. That is one of those things where you can just look at the numbers and they make sense and, okay, well, let's do it again. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a hassle, but still, I mean, at the end of the day, it's saving money. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've looked into refinancing again because <laughs> the rates have dropped since I did it in, in June. I know. Um, it's, it's been amazing. It's, it's I, I, I got quoted a 30-year mortgage at 2.3%. Wow. That's yeah, that's just pretty tremendous. crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, and you, you figure they've got nowhere to go but up from here, but we've been saying that for the past several years, so it's going to be fascinating to see how that how that interest rate environment plays out here over the coming year. Well, once it hit 3%, I told my wife, <laughs> it's not getting any lower. We need three finance, and I, 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 I was wrong. Well, you know, hey, timing is everything, like they say. 
well, Matt, that is an excellent review of your bold predictions for 2020. I appreciate you digging into that for us. And listeners, you can rest assured that we will be digging into Matt's bold predictions for 2021 here on an up-and-coming episode of Industry Focus. So don't worry. We'll be digging into those. We'll have a lot of fun with that. Um, but Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, we've been together, uh, at, at this show now, we've, we've been doing this show for, for better part of two years now together. And, and I hope it just goes without saying that I really enjoy and appreciate getting to do these shows with you. So thanks for another great year. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to 2021. Absolutely. I, I hope it's another, I hope it's a less eventful year in 2021, but, <laughs> but then, then we had some good shows. Yes, sir, we did. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, or the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting together the show for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next year.